0: Let us open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. The section that we will be going through is from verse 10 to 13, 4, but I will start my reading from verse 7 just to put us, put us in the context of what's happening here. So Genesis t- chapter 12, will start in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman of beautiful, and, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princess of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male uh, donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for a wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had chapter 13 so abram went up from egypt and he he and his wife and all that he had all lot with him into the negeb now abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold and he journeyed on from the negeb as far as bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between bethel and ai to the place where he had made an altar at the, at the first and there abram called Upon the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning. We thank you for giving us this sweet time to come out of the world. And come and sit at your feet. Knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ who promised that wheresoever two or three are gathered, he would be in their midst. In faith, we trust that he is here in our midst. And may our, glo- our eyes see His glory this morning. And may we see Him magnified with all His excellencies in our midst. Speak to us, Lord, as we sang. Speak to our hearts and our mind. Edify us, build us, purify us. And help us to be transformed into His image from one glory to another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Where I come from, in the Islamic world, one of the things that Muslims tend to mock Christians about is that the Bible is corrupted. This came very vividly and close to me once when I was in a treatment room. Two Muslim men were sitting in my treatment room, and when they realized I'm Christian, they started mocking the Bible and they started telling stories about the prophets of the Old Testament. I think somebody had told them these stories. I don't think they were smart enough to read on their own. But nonetheless, they, they started speaking about the Old Testament prophets. And their point was, how could the Bible be true when it speaks so negatively about the prophets of God? They picked up stories about David and about Judah when he, you know, and, and Tamar and so on. They, they were marking it that way. And of course, my answer to them was the same reason that you think the Bible is corrupted because of that is the reason I believe that the Bible is true. The Bible, unlike other holy books, supposed holy books, does not gloss over and cover up the mistakes and sins of the prophets. The Bible is truthful. It's written by God. And when somebody falls and commits a sin, the Bible tells us about it. So we can learn from it. And um, they were shocked at that, but that is the reality of it. The Holy Spirit points the sins and mistakes and falls of all the men of God when Saul and Nathan died, David wrote the poem, uh, Crying Them, and one of the lines in it says, How the mighty have fallen. And when we read the Bible, we could say that about almost every man and woman of God, that at some point in their lives, they did fall. What the Bible is telling us through that is that nobody is perfect. And I think because the The purpose of the Holy Spirit is always to magnify God, uh, Christ, and to point us to the glory of Christ. When we see that all these great men that we love reading their lives and try to emulate have fallen, the Holy Spirit is pointing us to the one who is only perfect and sinless. He is the object of our adoration, and he is the object that we should point and fixate our sight on. And so this morning we are obviously in the midst of one of those stories where one, the man of God, the greatest, probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, man that ever lived worshiping God and following God, Abraham, the friend of God, does something that every time we read it, just the other day Eli was visiting with me and we were going over and we were both, how could Abraham do this? does not make any sense. And it's my hope that uh, I can shed some light and we can meditate through these verses and learn some lessons from it. I'm going to break it into two main headings. Uh, We're going to go through verses 10 to 16 and we're going to call them trial and temptation. And then we're going to go through verses 17 to to 13, 4 and we're going to call that grace and mercy. So I'm going to read those verses for you one more time, 10 to 16. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt, sojourning there, from, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians will see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So this is the, what's happening here is, Abram entered the land, He built an altar in Shechem, then he moved to Bethel and built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord in Bethel. Then he moved down south into an area that is a desert area in the promised land called the Negev. And there, something happens that he did not expect and he's not familiar with. A famine took place. Famines are well known in the land of, of Palestine. Uh, Unlike Ur of the Chaldeans where he came from where there's the Tigris River feeding the land all the time and Egypt which has the Nile which feeds it all the time, the land of Palestine is very dependent on rain and when a, a, a year is dry they go through a famine. This is one of four, at least four famines mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, this is one. Then Isaac will experience one. Then Jacob will experience one. And then in the book of Ruth, in the days of Judges, there's another famine mentioned to us. Now Abram is going through this famine. He's he's a, a Bedouin. He's He has flocks. He has a family to take care of. And he's experiencing something, a trial he is not used to. He's probably never experienced a famine in his life before. And... Um, it says that it was a severe famine. And he seems to have panicked. And he didn't know what to do. And so he's going through a trial, is my point. A difficult time in his life. There's three things we learn about trials that we can draw from, from this. First thing about trials is that trials come even in the promised land. If you look at verse 7, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. This is the land of promise. This is the good land that I have promised you. Immediately, two verses later in verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land. Abram was br- promised blessing But the the road to blessing will be full of trials. Just because we are Christian, just because we are the children of God, just we have been blessed by our salvation, and we have a glorious destiny awaiting us, does not mean we will be spared from trials. Trials come even in the Promise land. If anything, trials are what enhances and bring the blessings into our lives. In James, if you would open James 1, we will be coming back to James 1, so we might want to keep it open. But James, these are familiar verses to us in 2 through 4, James 1, 2 through 4. Let's look at what James says about trials. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How does one become perfect, complete, lacking in nothing? Through trials. Therefore, consider it a joy. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to, to Timothy at the end of his life, as he's anticipating death, he writes, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, therefore, I am going to receive the crown of righteousness. How, did, how is Paul going to receive the crown of righteousness? Fighting the fight. And we all know what that fight was. That fight was full of imprisonments, persecutions, beatings, whippings, ships broken, etc. In his prayer on in chapter 17 in the Gospel of John, our Lord prays, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence as I have glorified you. The work that you have given me, I have finished. Finish the work, give me the glory. What is gonna take him to glory? Is the finished work. And what is that work? Is the trial of the cross. So, we are invited to rejoice in trials because trials is what brings us the crown. It is trials that will carry us into glory. It is trials that will make us perfect, and lacking in nothing according to James. So brothers and sisters, if if you are going through a trial this morning, count it all joy. Some of us, I am sure, are going through a sickness. Some of us may be going through financial difficulties. Some of us may be looking for employment. Some of us may be having difficult time at jobs or marital difficulties or difficulties with our children. These trials that our God allows into our lives are meant to sanctify us and eventually bring us into glory. Beloved, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See what he's saying? Trials is something not to be surprised at in the Christian life. Trials is something to be expected because we are to be tested. So that's the first thing about the trial that Abram is going through. Trials come even in the promised land. The second thing about trials that we learn is trials are a pop quiz. You never know when they're going to come. Again, I learned this very well where I come from, there was, never, there, there was no such a thing called pop quizzes. So normally we would know when our uh, exams would be during the year as students, and we would prepare for them. And I was the kind who left things to the last minute to study, uh, crash at the last minute preparing for the test. But the good thing, I knew when the test was coming. I came to the States, went to college. Next thing I know, there's something called a pop quiz. What is a pop quiz? <laughs> well, it's a test that is just popping. You know, at, at you. <laughs> well, that doesn't work for me. That's not what I'm used to. It taught me that you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared. Now, this was a trial that Abraham was not prepared for, in my opinion. Again, notice what is happening. In Shekim he builds an altar. In Bethel, he builds an altar. But in the Negeb. Verse 9, and these are three verses, one after the other. Shekin, verse 7, Bethel, verse 8, verse 9, the Negev, no altar. Why is there no altar? I don't know. But there is apparently no altar there. Is he distracted? Is he busy? Is he trying to get to know the the lay of the land and he has become too distracted to worship and stay close to his God? Uh, i don 't think it 's reading too much into this verse nine by not you know, the Holy Spirit is very clear about pointing the altars where he built an altar. I think this is reinforced at the end of the section in thirteen four if you look at thirteen four it says that when he came out of Egypt and ended up back at Bethel, notice how the Holy Spirit wraps up the story. It says to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there he called upon the name of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is telling us, Abraham went through this whole circle, ended up with no altar, going to Egypt, and God brought him ultimately back to where he belongs, where his tent was and where his altar was. So I don't think it's reading too much in saying that when this famine happened in the Negev, Abraham's spiritual state was not where he needed to, to be. I Coates, in his commentary on these sections, wrote the following beautiful quote. He said, The shortage of food is a very serious matter because it leads to souls going down to Egypt. It is hungry people who go down there. If you are nourished by spiritual food, you do not want the world's food. But if you do not get the former You will soon crave the latter. Abraham craved the latter because he was not being nourished spiritually. He was suffering from the syndrome of busyness. Martha's syndrome. Right? And the seed that is among the thorns syndrome where we are being distracted by so many things the cares of the world and the glory of the world, that we lose our connection to our God. And just when that happens, famine happens. He's busy, unprepared spiritually, and he is hit. It is our spiritual closeness to Christ that prepares us for the trials to come. In Luke, Our Lord said to Martha the following words. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but the one thing that is necessary, you have not been. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. The one thing that is necessary, Abraham seems to have missed the altar and the fellowship with God. The third thing about trials that we can draw from, and this, this here I'm going to linger a little longer, is trials reveal the idols of the heart. In Genesis 12.10, uh, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. <laughs> This is the first mention of the uh, nation of Egypt in the Bible. Um, to the original audience, um, Moses, I think, is trying to send a message. Um, remember the Israelites, when Moses is writing these, these books, they are in the wilderness. And what, the, what, what was their thing? Murmuring and yearning for Egypt all the time. And I think Moses... Is, is trying to say to them, you're yearning for Egypt, look what Egypt did even to your father Abraham. Is this where you really want to go? Um, Abraham here, in this verse, verse 10, seems to be struggling. It says, he he sojourned to Egypt, because the famine was severe. Kinda, you're going to get the sense that Maybe when the famine wasn't so severe, he tried to withstand the trial. But when it got really desperate, things got really desperate, he found himself forced almost and felt just obligated to save his family and he decided to go uh, to Egypt. Um, So he was facing a choice. There was two choices in front of him. One... Remain in the land. This is a choice of trusting the Lord. The Lord brought me here. I'm going to stay in the land. God will provide. If you go to James 1, let's go back to James 1 in verse 12. He says the following, James. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised him. This is the test. This is the test, Abraham. Withstand the trial. Be patient. Remain steadfast. This is the correct choice. How do we know it's the correct choice? Because when Isaac, his son, later on, would be tempted to go to Egypt because of a famine, God actually appeared to him, saying to him, do not go down to Egypt. That's not where I called your father for, and that's not what I'm calling you for. So he should have stayed in the land. Unfortunately, Abraham did not remain steadfast. He did not withstand the test. May the Lord help us That when we go through trials, we would have the faith to withstand the test and to remain steadfast in our confidence and reliance upon our Lord. The other choice, obviously, which is the choice he opted for, was to go to Egypt. This is a choice of self reliance. From human perspective, it made sense, right? It is the wise choice. Egypt has the Nile. It has water, which his flock and family desperately needed. This was also similar to my old country. My old country had tigris. He's saying to himself, I know how to handle that. Egypt has a similar thing. I know how to deal with this. This is the right thing to do. Whereas, waiting upon the Lord and waiting for rain, it was something he was still learning. He was still learning to trust in God. There will come a point when he will learn that lesson. He was not ready for that yet. So if you look at James 1, 12 and 13, notice how these verses turn. In James 1, 12, It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. From when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised. That's the trial. But then in verse 13, let no one say, When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Do you see the switch? There's a trial in verse 12. And there is a temptation in verse 13. They are not the same. In the middle of his trial of famine, a temptation came along. Egypt was the temptation. And denial was the temptation. It is not a t- temptation from the Lord. God didn't tell him to go to Egypt. It is not a trial, it is a temptation. And so in verse 14 in James 1, notice what happens when the temptation comes along our way. James says in 1:14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In the middle of the trial, a temptation comes and is playing on our desires. It offers us a solution. An easy solution, an easy out out of the trial. It plays on our desire, it lures us and it entices us. In Jesus' case, you're hungry. That's a trial. Here is a stone. Turn it to a bread. That's a temptation. In the three men, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're in a foreign land. Their face is being challenged. That's the trial. Bow the knee. What's the big deal? That's the temptation. In Abraham's case, it's a famine. It's a trial. Well, here's Egypt, very similar to Ur of the Chaldeans, full of green grass for your flocks. Go down there. What's the big deal? That's what happens. A temptation presents itself, playing on our desires, enticing and luring us towards an easy out of the trial. And so, James 1.15, if you continue the thought, notice what happens. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. When desire is conceived. Now, you may have a desire and you may have a temptation, but you don't necessar- you haven't fallen yet. But there is a moment when the falling happens. In Abraham's case, when did desire conceive? When he made the decision and started making his way to Egypt. Going down to Egypt was the conception of his desire, following the temptation going down. And he says, when it conceives, it birthes sin. What is the sin? The sin is lying about Sarah. Once he started making it, it, did you notice in the verses? As he came close to Egypt, all of a sudden, reality starts to hit. Wait a second, Sarah, you're beautiful. These people are evil. They're going to see you. And they're going to want you. And they're going to decide to kill me. Let's lie. That is the conception of his sin. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Temptation and desire are never free. Sin demands a price always. <laughs> Abraham to Egypt. Please save me from the famine. Egypt to Abraham. I will. I can. One condition you give me Sarah. So may God help us not to be tempted because sin is never free. I want to speak specifically to the teenagers here. Because teenagers, as you are growing up and you are starting to make your own decisions in life, the devil will come your way and he will offer you many temptations He will offer you an easy way out in times of trouble. And He will play on your fleshly desires and offer you things that may seem to be attractive and desirable in the beginning. I just want to remind you, at this young age, sin is never free. What the devil gives, the devil demands back. And much more. There's a heavy price. Abraham paid a heavy price for his lie. Which leads us to the real idol of his heart. You know, we're, like I said, we, we read this story and we are bewildered. Why, Abraham, why would you go to these depths in conniving and you know, deceiving and lying and building up this lie? Why would you do that? I think it was, there was a bigger and deeper idol in his heart. And this idol is survival, fear of death. His own life was more important to him than the well-being of Sarah. That is the idol in his heart. Notice, again, look at Genesis 12, verses 12 and 13. Notice how many times he says, me and my. Notice 12, thir- uh, verse 13. When the Egyptians will see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that they, it may go well with me. Because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. Ah, this is the idol right there. What is he basically saying to Sarah? I'm imagining, but what is he basically... What's the, the unsaid saying that he's telling her? Listen to this. He says, Abraham to Sarah, we need to go to Egypt... To save our flocks. I need you to save me from death in Egypt by lying about you. Sarah to Abraham. Um, What about me? Who's going to save me from the Egyptians? (laughs) Abraham to Sarah. You have to be the sacrificial lamb for me. They may take you for a wife. But at least we both will live. Isn't that what he's basically saying to her? As long as we live, survival. But it's okay, I'll let you go. We'll just let you go. One can only imagine what was going on in her mind. Hearing her husband, her beloved husband, with whom she left thousands of miles, she's been traveling with him, saying these words to her. So I want to make a comment here about, about women and wives and obedience. Because Sarah is commended in the epistle of Peter. Peter commends her for his, her obedience to Abram. She used to call him master. And Peter commends her for that. Uh, but there is a, le- a lesson here to Christian wives. Obedience to the Lord is obedience... Uh, I mean, I'm mean, i sorry. Obedience to the husband is obedience in the Lord. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Meaning the authority of the husband in your life comes from the Lord. A wife's obedience to her husband is on the basis that the husband is leading her in the Lord's commandment and his word. That's where a wife should obey. A, Christian's wa- a Christian wife is not a robot, brothers and sisters. She doesn't give up her mind and will at the altar of marriage and starts being a robot under the control of her husband. A Christian wife is a helper, like him. And I think, in my opinion, that when the husband is going the wrong way, especially against the word of God, It is the wife's duty to stand up and say, Wait a second, this going down to Egypt doesn't sound right. And me lying to the Egyptians doesn't sound right. And I'm not going to do it. I think Sarah should have made a stronger stand on this. She wasn't a weak woman. We know that. She gave her husband to Hagar... At one point, after a child, she has an opinion of her own, a mind of her own. But I think in this incident, she's awfully too quiet about what is going on here. And by the way, this plan, this whole plan, wasn't born in the moment. It wasn't like Abraham King is panicking, he's entering Egypt, and no, no, this is something he... He planned with her a long time ago. If you open in Genesis 20.11, because he falls the same fall with Abimelech in Gerar. I hope I'm pronouncing these names correctly. I, sp- I pronounce them the way I pronounce them in the, in the Arabic Bible. Nonetheless, when he, he, he makes the same mistake with Abimelech, later on he will make the same mistake so when Abimelech comes and asks him, why did you do this? Why are you doing this? Listen to what he says to him. He says to him in Genesis twenty thirteen. He says to him, he says, When God calls me to wander from my father's house, I say to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Ah, This is not something that he just out of panic entering Egypt is is coming up with. This is something premeditated. From the day he left Ur of the Chaldean, this idol of his heart, this fear of death as he is entering the land has captivated him so much and paralyzed him so much that it's clouding his judgment and it's making him willing not only to lie about his wife but to give up his wife so he could survive. That is the idol of his heart. Fear of death. He trusted God enough to leave his land, to leave his kindred, to leave his father's house. What he apparently was still learning and hadn't yet, to trust God with his own life. That's where he was struggling. Fear of death. In the heart. And by the way, this fear that Abraham was feeling is a natural fear in all our hearts, according to the book of Hebrews. All of us, brothers and sisters, from the moment we are born, we know that we are going to die one day. One day, death is going to come. That is the enemy. That is the enemy of all our hearts. But here's the good news about it. Christ conquered death. He took away the fear of death from our hearts. In Hebrews 2.9, we hear the following words. It says, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death For everyone. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook... Of the same things... That through death... He might destroy the one... Who has the power of death... That is the devil. And deliver all those... Who through fear of death... You see we're all fearful of death. That's what the Hebrew... We're all fearful of death. But Christ in his death... He, he can deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? In his death, our Lord Jesus Christ delivered us from the fear of death. Now Abraham one day would overcome the fear of death. How do I know? Because one day he will be asked to kill his own son whom he loves. Abraham seems to have suffered from two things. The fear of death and a deep burning desire to have a son. And when he took Isaac up that mountain and lifted his hand with a knife in it. God set him free from both. In offering Isaac, he conquered the fear of death. And he conquered the desire to have a son. He came to realize, it says in Hebrews eleven seventeen, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. There he conquered the fear of death. But until now, and in going to Egypt, he was still struggling with this idol in his heart. He does not want to die. And he's willing to do anything to survive. So that's that section of it. Trial and temptation. Grace and mercy. We're going to go over it, not as long. So what happens? Notice verse 17. It says, But the Lord... But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. few thoughts on these verses. I'm not going to read them all for time. We've read them already. So God interferes, brings plagues. Pharaoh blames Abraham and sends him out of Egypt. In shame, mind you. What do we learn from these verses? First thing we learn is that God is always present. But the Lord. Until now he's in the background. Abraham is acting on his own. All of a sudden in verse 17, God makes an appearance. But the Lord. While Abraham is distractful and fearful and planning and plotting, God is in the background watching everything. Second thing, God is more powerful than Pharaoh. By bringing the plague on Pharaoh, God is telling Abraham, Abraham, your fear is unfounded. I am more powerful than Pharaoh. Even if you came to Egypt, I could have saved you from Pharaoh. You didn't need to be lying and doing all these things. A third thing, Sarah was not forgotten by the Lord. Did you notice how this verse, verse 17, ends? It says that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his wife with great plagues. Why? Because of whom? For whom? Because of Sarah. His eyes on Sarah. He is concerned about Sarah. And he wants to save Sarah. He cares for her. When her husband, in his selfishness, abandoned her, God did not leave her alone. Moses is writing to the original audiences, the Jews, in the wilderness, and is reminding them. And he's telling them, look, You were like Sarah, prisoners of Pharaoh. And God didn't come with one plague. God came and delivered you with ten plagues upon Pharaoh. He did not forget them. And praise God, he did not forget her when her husband abandoned her. A fourth thought about these verses. God restored Abraham. In Genesis thirteen three to four, we saw that he journeys out of Egypt back to the Negev, and then eventually into Bethel, where he had originally built his altar and his tent. And he says he called upon the name of the Lord, meaning the relationship got restored. You get the sense of repentance, right? He came back to the Lord. He came back to his senses. The Lord forced him to come back into. Repentance. He returned to his altar. So, what do what do we make of the story? What do we learn from this? First thing we learn is that Abraham's sin affirms our sin. In New Testament light, we are taught that we are all sinners under condemnation. If Abraham is a sinner like this, how come you and how 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 much more you and I are sinners? In Romans 3.10, Paul says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. Abraham's sin proves that. Because the great Abraham sinned. And we are sinners. Moses again to the Jews, If Abraham, the father of the nation, and the father of the faithful, could sin like this, what do you think you are capable of? You know, the common saying, even society, even secular people, will say that the saying, I am human, basically s- speaks to, that, to this truth. That when we say, I am human, right, we are saying we are imperfect. Everybody knows that we are imperfect. Of course I'm human. Of course I'm going to make mistakes. Everybody say even atheists say that. We are capable of so much sin, brothers and sisters. Given the right circumstances, we are capable of doing much more than what Abraham did in sins. Do you remember the story during the war of Iraq? The Abu Ghraib prison story? Where good, good young men, American young men and women... When they were put and isolated in the prison of Abu Ghraib started committed atrocities against the prisoners where they would strip them naked they would make dogs attack them and bite them they would hook them to electrical cords they did things that were unimaginable good young american soldiers sociologists were not surprised by that because they had done experiments and they they had shown that When people are put under certain specific circumstances, they can act in a very sadistic way. And any one of us under those circumstances could do that. We are utterly, utterly, utterly depraved. And we need the mercy of God. So Abraham's sin demonstrates that. The second thing is, God seems to have let Abraham slide. No punishment, right? I mean, in these same books that Moses is writing, Genesis and the Torah, in Exodus, it says, who will, meaning speaking of God, who will by no means clear the guilty? But isn't God in this incident, seems to be clearing Abraham, letting him just slide. There's no, no mention of punishment whatsoever in this text. What happened? Shouldn't he be punished? Shouldn't he be punished? Yeah. Isaiah answers that question for all of us. Isaiah 53.6, he says the following. The Lord has laid on him the suffering servant the iniquity of us all. When God forgave Abraham, he wasn't letting sin go unpunished. But God was seeing, looking 2,000 years to the future and seeing the cross and his son hanging on it. And he took the punishment of Abraham and laid it on his son and so Abraham could restore the relationship with God and it was Abraham's faith in God's promises that saved him because he believed in what God was promising about his seed who was to come and so as we conclude this afternoon we look not to Abraham but we looked at Jesus. The only one who in the words of James is perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. If you are a wife being used or abused by your husband, look to Jesus, the perfect husband. <coughs> the one who would never abuse his wife, the one who gave his life for his wife. If you are a husband, hearing these words and feeling weak and failing in your leading and caring for your wife, look to the Lord Jesus, the perfect husband, and lean on him and, and trust in him. If you're going through trials, like Abraham was going through a trial of famine, sickness, depression, loss of a loved one, look to the Lord. Stay steadfast in Christ. He withstood the temptation and the trial for you. And He will see you through. It says that, Through suffering, through his suffering, he had to be made like this, like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He is with us, sympathizing with us through our trials. If you're going through a temptation, there may be a sin in your life, You can't resist it. You're being lured by it time after time. There's an Egypt in your life enticing you, calling you. You've wandered down the wrong path and ended up, you find yourself in Egypt. Remember that sin and temptation are not free. Christ alone can forgive your sins. He has the power over Pharaoh in your life. Come to him. Confess your sins to him. Repent to him. And lastly, if you have an idol in your life, an idol you cannot let go of, maybe you're afraid of death like Abraham. Maybe you love something too much that you're willing to give up and sacrifice your family and, and, and friends for I invite you this morning to come out of Egypt come back to Bethel confess your idol to God repent of your sins come and lay your sin at the feet of the cross return to the Savior and he will take your punishment for you Like he did the punishment of Abraham. And restore you to God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. And we pray that we will learn this lesson from Abraham.